This is Play-By-Play Cast. Is that faster than a greyhound? The podcast about play-by-play guys. For play-by-play guys, by I'm told, a play-by-play guy. It's a bold strategy, Cotton. Let's see if it pays off for him. Now here's the host of Play-by-Play Cast, Todd Bodet. <laughs> Wait, the Motel 6 guy? We'll leave the light on for you. No, Joel Godet. Joe Godet. Joel. Joe. Joel? Joel, with an L. Okay, here's your host, Joel Godet. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. They do have a timeout. Decide not to use it. Curry, way downtown. Bang! Bang! Oh, what a shot from Curry! With six tenths of a second remaining! This is the 80th episode of Play by Play Cats. Thanks as always for clicking subscribe and or download. Joining us once again here on a Friday morning. My name is Joel Gadet coming to you, as Colt Cabana would say, live from the studio apartment. 80 episodes in and the second to last episode of 2017. It will be our first full calendar year as a podcast coming up on next week's episode, but a lot to get to uh, before we get to that. As always, you can interact with the podcast on Twitter at PXPCast. The podcast is published on Facebook as well at my page, Joel PXP, if you look that up. And you can find me on Twitter as well at Joel Godet, G-O-D-E-T-T, J-O-E-L-G-O-D-E-T-T. I've heard from a bunch of people over the last couple of weeks uh, and thanks for reaching out. Uh, last couple episodes have gotten some really good responses. Uh, Len Casper this past week from the Chicago Cubs. Jake Zivin, uh, our first soccer guest from the Portland Timbers, was episode 78. And uh, the the numbers on uh, Boog Shiambi's episode, um, episode number 77 a couple of weeks back, have been awesome as well. As always, our back catalog, totally free, totally open to you if you want to scroll back through the previous 79 episodes, but uh, love the feedback. If you enjoy the podcast, what you've enjoyed about the podcast, um, it's awesome to hear from people uh, or people that have gotten stuff out of it, feel like it's made them better broadcasters. Uh, Super fun to hear from you guys. So uh, thank you guys for reaching out over the last couple of weeks. And, uh, you know, I like groveled last week on the podcast saying, everybody on podcasts asks you to go rate and review. I feel like it's like you have to do it. I don't know. It's like, it's in the unwritten rules, but like I, I last, last week I said, rate or review the podcast. Like, just, you know, if you like it, give us four or five stars. If you, if you like it, like three stars or less, maybe not. Um, but a whole bunch of you, uh, obliged last week. So I guess I'll ask again, Hey, if you haven't <laughs> rated or reviewed the podcast yet, uh, you can just flip over in, in the iPhone app, uh, or if you're listening on an Android or on Stitcher, same thing. Uh, just throw a couple of stars uh, or a quick note our way uh, if you've enjoyed, if you've learned um, about the pod. And, and certainly on Twitter, uh, reply to the tweets about the podcast. Uh, tweet at the guys who are on the podcast. Let them know uh, that their time was was well spent. That, you know, not just I myself got something out of it doing the interview, but that uh, people out there uh, were able to take something from it as well. Uh, all right, let's dive into it. You don't want to hear me ramble. Uh, Mike Breen is our guest today, the television voice of the New York Knicks and, of course, the voice uh, of the NBA Finals. And for my money, which, you know, what's that worth? I don't know. Uh, I think for a lot of people's money, though, one of the best television basketball broadcasters uh, out there today. So uh, I was, like, uber stoked to get to have Mike Breen on this podcast. Uh, and we cover a really wide-ranging swath of things uh, Mike was more than generous with his time, uh, covered a bunch of topics. Uh, 
we start, well, you know, we'll come back to where we start, but we get into, uh, you know, kind of his, his origins in news and being able to do more things and be versatile. Uh, his thoughts on the birth of sports talk, because he was kind of there for it. So he guides us through a little bit of that. Um, talking about being on air in New York City and what it's like to be a, a play-by-play guy in media market number one with a fan base like the New York Knicks. Uh, we'll talk about uh, you know the technical side of you know what makes good basketball play-by-play, what makes good basketball play-by-play locally versus nationally, having experience uh, on a regular basis at both levels. Um, we'll talk about working with his his partners, what it's like working with uh, you know Clyde Frazier, what it's like working on a national level with the three-man booth of Mark Jackson and Jeff Van Gundy, which is a hoot to to watch and listen to, and kind of how he's the point guard for those guys and how he makes all of that work and, and how those three guys really gel together as well as they do. Uh, we'll touch on Bang, uh, obviously the, the, the big uh, three-point call. Uh, we'll talk about feedback and you know his own critiques of his own work, which I think is... One of the more insightful and, and one of my uh, favorite parts of our conversation. So we'll touch on kind of his his self-critique and, and the feedback system that he gets even to this day, uh, several decades into being uh, the voice of the New York Knicks and, you know, one of the more respected voices of basketball play-by-play. Uh, where we start, though, is with a guy named Dean Darling, uh, who might might be a good guy to have on the podcast at some point uh, in the future, but uh, when Mike Breen started his career, it was actually as Dean Darling's color analyst for the Marist Red Foxes. Uh, that's where he got to start in the MAC, the M-A-A-C, as opposed to the Mid-American Conference. Uh, but the M-A-A-C, Marist Red Foxes, Mike Breen on television was a color analyst. And uh, we touched to start things off with what he learned from that experience and how that helped mold who he is now, uh, eventually launching the career of the voice of the New York Knicks. So without further ado, let's dive right into the uh, podcast on the penultimate episode here in 2017. It is Mike Breen from the New York Knicks. Enjoy. It was a, a, a different way to look at a broadcast because first off, Dean was, he was such a polished play-by-play announcer. Um, one of the best guys I've ever worked with. <laughs> and he showed me the proper way to, to get your partner involved. Um, he showed me when to, when was probably the best way to, um, you know, to turn the, the volume up. When's the best way to lay out. Um, he just had a great feel for, for play by play. So to just watch him do his craft, sit next to him and be a part of a broadcast where you really, you know, you're entrenched in the broadcast and you, you saw the way he handled all different situations. It was a great learning experience. And then to, to be the, the color um, commentator and, and have this, you know, job that I had to, you know, inform um, the viewers in a certain way and knowing what I wanted to say, I, I got a real feel for what analysts might be going through at a certain time. Uh, you know, it's it's hard for an analyst in a big moment to have to be quiet while the play-by-play guy <laughs> does his thing. And it taught me that because you sit there and you want to talk. And quite frankly, throughout the game, you know, the analyst has a lot to say. So it, it really gave me a nice window into what they're going through during the, during the telecast and, 
and um, you know he was just such a pro, and he was so patient because it was it was the first TV job that I ever had on the air um, that I learned a great deal from him. What are you thinking in that moment? Because I feel like a lot of people uh, nowadays, twenty, you know, early twenties, would sit there and be like, "What am I doing here in the in the color role, um, trying to figure this out?" How did you approach it from the standpoint of like? I, I kind of really want Dean's job in the long run, um, but let me get what I can get out of this while I'm here. Well, two things made it very easy. Number one, I just love basketball. So okay. to be able to, to be able to part of any broadcast uh, of a basketball game to me was as fun as it gets. And the second thing, I, I received wonderful advice when I was at uh, at Fordham. I, I interned at WCBS News Radio 88 in New York City. And the sports director was a gentleman by the name of Ed Ingalls. And Ed, to this day, is still a guy that I, I call and talk to and get feedback from and, and ask him questions. He, he told me very early, the best thing I could do early in my career is get out of my comfort zone. And by that, he meant when you get out of college, he says, you take any job that gets you on the air, whether it's news, whether you're, you're being a disc jockey, um, it doesn't matter. Get out of your comfort zone because if, if you get out of your comfort zone, and he especially emphasized doing news, he said, if you can report on news stories that you don't know a lot about, it'll force you to be more of a reporter. It'll force you to, to, uh, to be a little more focused in trying to figure out what to say and what to write because it's not a, a subject that you know very well or not a subject that you're very comfortable with. And it was a great, great piece of advice because, you know, if my first job was, was at a radio station in Poughkeepsie and I was covering the Poughkeepsie school board, the Dutchess County legislature, all different types of um, events and topics that I did not know anything about. And it forced me to ask more questions and really be careful on how I, I um, wrote the story and broadcast the story. So then by the time I, I started doing sports and now I'm doing a basketball game, Boy, it seemed so much easier because I knew the um, I knew the topic so much better. Yet at the same time, I also developed better habits in terms of covering something and, and how to approach it and how to write it. Um, it was a simple but a brilliant piece of advice that that really helped. So I, I've been telling that ever since to to young broadcasters who want to do sports. Uh, don't be afraid to take jobs in other areas in the field because. You get out of your comfort zone in the long run, it, it just it will make you a better sportscaster because now you're doing something that you have passion about and, and know a lot more about, yet at the same time you get those building blocks on and how the best way to approach stories and broadcast stories are. Loaded question because I know there's a couple of dots in between um, there and getting to the Knicks, but how did you come to uh, become involved with the New York Knicks? I was working, again, another off-air job. I was working as a, the producer for a sports talk show on NBC radio. Jack Spector um, was hosting a show on NBC radio. Uh, NBC decided to try something different. They still had Imus in the morning. They had Howard Stern in the afternoon, Soupy Sales in midday. And then they stuck this sports <laughs> show on at night, which didn't seem to fit, but they wanted to try it. Because there really, at the time, there was no WFAN. There was no all sports radio. There was only two sports shows uh, in New York. One was Art Rush Jr. on ABC, and the other was the Fordham radio station at WFUV. Was that one-on-one -on -one back um, then, too? Correct. Wow. And I think, um, you know, started working for the show, and 
they changed hosts to a guy named Dave Sims, and Madison Square Garden Network decided, you know what, this is a pretty interesting show. Maybe we could simulcast it. So the network um, started televising the show. We'd do it down at at, uh, at the Garden, and it was simulcast on NBC Radio and MSG Network. And I was the producer of the radio, and the producer of the uh, television side was a gentleman by the name of Mike McCarthy. And we formed a, a, a great friendship, and he knew I wanted to do play-by-play, and um, that was the connection that was made. So based off my relationships through the simulcast as a producer – um, you know, I'd given them tapes and was hoping to do some play-by-play. And I started doing some other play-by-play as well during that time. And that was really the connection that got me hired to do uh, the Knicks pregame. The first year on radio, I did pregame, halftime, and postgame. And then uh, Jim Carvellis, the great uh, basketball announcer, he was the guy. He uh, um, They didn't renew his contract after the first year, and, and I was able to get the job. I'm sorry, that's a little long-winded. No, but, no, it's good. What happened? Um, what, what's, what was sports talk radio like, uh, back when there wasn't any, uh, and, and then a one-on-one's more of an interview show. So kind of what, how did you mold what you guys were doing and, and kind of cracking a, a new space? Well, one-on-one, it, it, they, they did have interviews, but there was basically phone callers. Okay. Um, that really was, was kind of the, 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 the niche because we all, we had so many different callers who had, you know, <laughs> <laughs> you think FAN has some some characters? Boy, oh boy, did we have some characters! In fact, we even one time we had a we threw a lunch or a picnic lunch oh, um, for all the because <laughs> we all we wanted to meet them. They were all these characters, and they were all so passionate and really smart about sports. So it was so it was fun, um, but it was it was almost seemed like a fad in some ways. It, you didn't think it was going to make it. I remember. Uh, when I was producing the show at, at uh, WNBC, while we were doing the show, and we were on for several months, all of a sudden, uh, FAN announces they're going to have an all-sports show. And we're thinking, okay, we got a little competition now. <laughs> and it, come, it comes on the air, and we listen to it for the first couple of days. And being the smug idiots that we were, we all looked at each other and said, come on, this will never last. <laughs> and instead, it just started everything. It was just, it was so new and it was exciting, but you didn't know how it was going to, how it was going to last. Because for example, when FAN started, they they hired national names. They didn't hire New York people. Sure. And you quickly found out, at least in the early days, that sports talk to really garner the listeners um, had to be regional. It had to have that local flavor. Now that's changed uh, because it's, you know, obviously there's a lot of national, uh, terrific and successful national uh, sports talk shows. But at first to get it going, you you really had to focus on what the fans in that area cared about. You know, like for example, in New York, it it was all Mets and Yankees and Knicks and Rangers. If you started talking about college football, your your audience would just dip because it wasn't that big a deal here. Yeah. Uh, you started talking about soccer or even hockey to some extent, which wasn't as happy. You had to you had to talk about what what the local people really wanted to talk about. So it was very the key was it it, it had to be regional and localized in the early days. What was it like? And, and I guess this goes back to to doing it at Fordham, and, and this probably still applies now. Um, but even early on in your career, and then when you started with the Knicks. Um, kind of growing and um, breaking into this business in media market number one. 
and kind of cutting your teeth and, and becoming who you were in New York? Well, I think, Joel, in some ways it was, it was easier for me okay. because I had grown up in New York and I, you know, I was a sports fan and I had five brothers who were sports fans and every friend I had was a sports fan. So in, in some ways it, you, you felt like you were part of them. I've always felt that way sure. as a Nick announcer. I'm one of them because that's who I was growing up. So you you have a feel for for maybe what they think, how they feel. I don't mean everybody, but the vast majority. And and when you when you have a a good background in terms of the history of the Knicks or the history of the Mets or you know uh, any any team in sports or or the highs and lows of being a New York sports fan, I, I think it really helps you. I think it's difficult for somebody from the outside to come in and, and be an announcer, say, of, of a local team, just like it would be difficult for me to go and be the announcer of the Lakers. You know, sure, I, I, I'd have the, the uh, fundamentals down to be able to, but I, I haven't been there my whole life. I, I haven't been through the roller coaster ride of, of what it is being a fan for a certain team. And I, I think that was a, a very big aid for me in the early going and gave me the confidence um, that that I could be an announcer for for the Knicks. Um, and I never really thought of it as, you know, New York. I mean, that's my, that's my hometown. That's where I lived my home life. So, so I think that was, that was helpful in the early days. Is there something unique to the microscope though? You know, I, I read the, the ringer profile on you and you, and you talked about the dinner you guys had a, a couple of years back where you got all of the New York play-by-play guys together and you just kind of had stories of, of being New York voices. Um, is there something unique, uh, to being in that market and being, with 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 so many eyes and ears on you it's a it's a good question i i don't know if it's unique as it used to be um but we we certainly all think it is <laughs> because of the way the fans react sure. um i mean th- there is no holding back on their opinion on what they think uh if they like you or if you if they don't like you if if they agree with you on a certain player or they're on the complete opposite end of it um and I think that's that's what makes it makes it so much fun. Um, you know, fans are passionate in every city, so it might be hard for me to to answer that with uh, with knowledge because you know I know f- the the guys in Boston who do the games there, their fans are just as passionate as we are. Sure. Are they different in terms of how they act toward their toward their um, home team announcers? Um, it's hard for me to say. I do know that in New York. For example, to, to please the fans, you have to, in, in some ways, you have to let them know you're rooting for that team. I mean, I'm a Knicks fan since I'm a kid, so I'm hoping Knicks fans know I want them to win every game when I'm broadcasting these games. But at the same time, you have to have a balance. They don't want you to sugarcoat. They don't want you in New York uh, to tell you, boy, the team is, boy, they're really trying hard and they're playing great. No, if, if the team is lackadaisical and have no energy, they want you to say that. They want you to tell you when a certain player is having an awful night. They don't want you to sugarcoat it. And I don't know if it's the same across the country in terms of what the fans want. I do know in New York they don't want that. They want you to be honest. But at the same time, um, they want you to, um, you know, to let you know they're rooting for it. I do have one story, Joel, that, that kind of opened my eyes a little bit about this off your question. The Knicks were in a stretch where they were really bad. And this particular year – they were, it's just, it was such a tough year. They weren't talented enough. They weren't playing hard enough. 
And I, after one game, I walked out of the garden and a young man, probably in his early thirties, dressed in a suit, whole thing, he comes up and he says, Hey, can I ask you a question? And I said, sure. He goes, why do you hate the Knicks so much? <laughs> and I was stunned by the question. I said, hate the Knicks. I said, I've been a Knicks fan since I was about seven years old. What do you mean? He says, well, you're killing them on the air every night. I said, well, look at their record. There's not a lot of praise. There's not a lot of positive things to say. He goes, listen, I know they stink. I watch every game, but you don't have to tell me they stink every time they bring the ball up the court. And that really opened my eyes in terms of how you have to sometimes broadcast. You have to broadcast for your viewers. And at, say at that point in the season, there were so many fans who were still watching, even though the team was terrible. And they knew they were terrible, but it was their team. This is their team. They love their team for you know good days and bad days. And it made me realize, okay, yeah, I've got I've to state what's happening. I've got to be honest with the viewers. I can't sugarcoat it. But at the same time, you don't have to beat them over the head. There's other ways to get your viewers interested. It's like, you know, talking about the development of a young player who might turn the ball over too much, but at the same time, he plays hard on defense. Things like that, where you have to balance that between being objective, um, being honest, don't sugarcoat, but at the same time, you know, remember who you're broadcasting to. The majority are loyal, diehard Nick fans who want any bit of, of good information to bring them back the next time. That's probably changed a little bit over time, too, hasn't it, in terms of the way the NBA's developed and, and kind of being more of a, I don't want to say developmental league, but you get to the point where players are younger, they're coming out of college earlier, or, or certainly the years where they were coming out of high school, and you, you probably saw some things at the NBA level that you didn't see years and years ago, if that makes sense. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think there are a lot of players who, who could have used more the patience factor, um, I guess. Just to play more, right. Um, needed to play more fundamentally to get themselves prepared to play play at that, this level. Um, but you know what? Also, it's another way of looking at it is a lot depends on who your team is. If you're broadcasting a team that isn't supposed to be very good, mm. uh, it's only going to win 30 games. Well, they're going to play poorly on a number of nights, and you have to lower your expectations. Uh, whereas if you have a team that, you know, they got a chance to, to win the East and could win 55 to 60 games and they're playing poorly, well, then you're a little harsher on them because they're underachieving. So a lot depends on, you know, the talent on the roster and the expectations going into the season in terms of how you deal with, um, is this a good performance? You know, a good performance for one team would be a horrible performance for another team just because of the expectations on, on a particular club that year. That in mind, how do you approach a Knicks game versus a national game? If you're on ESPN or if you're doing a Knicks game, um, mindset-wise, preparation-wise, what is different for you on a day-to-day basis? Um, it's not as big a difference as, as some might think. Um, obviously, when I'm preparing for a Knicks game for on MSG, um, I'm paying a little more attention to um, – to the specific players and specific notes that might not be of interest to a national uh, level. Like for example, um, you know, Courtney Lee for the Knicks recently has had a really good stretch over five or six games. That might not be a, a, a stat that has a lot of interest if I'm doing the game on ESPN, but for Nick fans, they're seeing that sure. or uh, uh, more specifically St. Frank Nilakina, the rookie boy, he's starting to come on. So the last three games he has, 
12 assists and two turnovers. That's an interesting fact for a Nick fan. It's not an interesting fact for a national fan who's watching the game. So um, that's one difference. Uh, the other difference is, is basically if I'm doing an ESPN game and they're playing the Lakers, um, I, I try and balance the amount of comments I make 50% on the Lakers and 50% on the Knicks. Whereas if it's an MSG game, you know, my questions to Clyde, it's probably 75% Knicks and 25% opponent, you know? So if the Knicks are up by 20 in the first quarter, uh, if I'm doing MSG, I'm asking Clyde, boy, why are they playing so well? Why are they up by 20? But if I'm doing it with Jeff Van Gundy or Mark Jackson, I might be saying, you know, why are the Lakers so awful to start this game? I mean, they're, they're down by 20 in the first. So it's just minor tweaks and, and again, kind of um, reflecting on who your audience is. What's the difference in a, in a national nugget versus a local nugget? If you're going to, the, the tennis is two turnovers last three games is a good local kind of idea. What, where is your focus at for, for things you think are more of national interest? Um, a lot depends on the player. For example, national interest, a lot of people t- tomorrow night were doing Knicks and Lakers. A lot of any Lonzo ball stat, <laughs> stat you know, like yeah. what's he shooting? What's he shooting in the last five games is of interest to the national audience. What Courtney <laughs> Lee is shooting in the last five games might not be of interest because he's True. such a, you know, Lonzo ball right now is such a polarizing figure, or at least a, a player that people tune in to watch to see how the kid is doing. So um, it's more geared toward the players of interest and obviously, say you're doing a Golden State game, you know the, the the offensive numbers in terms of efficiency and shooting numbers are so off the charts. Um, for example, I just did a Warriors game last week, and they had a five-game stretch where they averaged 124 points a game and shot 50. I think it was 54 percent from the field. Uh, that's an incredible number. Where I'm not going to be saying that about the Charlotte Hornets, like what's their shooting the last five games. <laughs> Um, unless it's something extraordinary, which, you know, it, it might be. So you can, you can never say never, but it's, that's, that's kind of the way in terms of star players and uh, star teams or elite teams. Tell me about being a traffic cop a little bit uh, and in terms of getting to your analysts the best way possible and, and how that changes too in terms of who you're working with. Um, best way that you go about getting the best you can out of Clyde um, versus, uh, I'm sure, a totally different challenge in, in terms of working with Jeff and Mark. Um, Clyde is a little more laid back, so asking him specific questions um, is a little more necessary uh, in terms of just trying to get him where he's feeling on a certain team or on a certain player. Um, UB Brown, for example, you never really have to ask UB a question. He's as prepared as anybody I've ever seen with numbers. Uh, for example, um, when I do a game with Jeff and Mark, my preparation, uh, I, I look, I have more numbers and stats than I do with UB, for example, because, uh, Jeff and Mark, they don't rely on numbers that much. They're more of the eye test, uh, the feel, Whereas Yubi is very analytical with his numbers. So I don't have to prepare as many stats and numbers. In fact, I, I rarely bring them up on the air when I'm working with Yubi because um, he's so good with that. He, um, he applies that to the telecast so well that for me to add numbers, it becomes too many numbers. But when I work with Jeff and Mark, I put the numbers in because they don't go that route. So 
that's one of the differences. Um, Jeff is also number one. He kind of likes to ease himself into a game. He likes to see what's happening um, before he starts commenting. And I think that's, that's one of the great things about Jeff and Mark is they don't feel the need to talk every time. They kind of, they want to watch first before they comment. So with them, I might throw out some questions early just to get them going. But quite honestly, Joel, with, with all those, I don't need to be a traffic cop. They're also, I think that part is overrated because they're also talented. They're also knowledgeable, um, that all I've got to do is, is shut up every once in a while and they're going to say something good. How do you, and I guess this kind of, you, you touched on that a little bit, but but how do you prepare in terms of knowing where they might want to go? Uh, what are those conversations like so that you're kind of all on the same page ahead of time um, and that you know, you know what they know, they know what you know, and, and you've got an idea of what kind of arc to paint on a given night? Well, the beauty of that is... Um, if you have dinner the night before <laughs> okay, and you talk about the game and you find out what they're thinking about this player or that player, um, you know, for example, if we're at dinner the night before and, and, um, Mark's talking about Tim Hardaway and has some interesting things to say, I, I, back of my head, I'm saying, man, I'm, I got to ask him that sure. early on in the game tomorrow. Uh, and even on the rides to the arena, you know, you, you get in the car and you're driving together into the arena and you're discussing certain things, and, and you really play off that. That's why, you know, having the relationship outside of, of just the telecast can be instrumental in terms of how you handle. Now, there are other instances where, you know, it it's actually fun and surprising when it's spontaneous and you don't know when it's coming. Um, but there are other times, too, where, um, you know, when you prepare ahead of time, you can really focus in on something, and you can tell the producer, hey, we're – we're going to talk about so-and-so and they might like put an ISO camera on them for a little bit. So it's a little bit of both, but I, but I think the more you talk to your partner off the air, the better feel you get for what they're thinking about the teams and specific players. The prep side for you in particular, uh, I forget which, uh, there was one story I was reading where it talked about, you know, night before you're in the, you're a lot of times in the hotel studying up on different statistics and things like that. Um, how do you decide, um, you know, I don't, and, and Al Troutwick tweeted out the picture of your boards too, which I thought was incredible because of the amount of detail that's on there. Um, kind of, how do you decide what goes on there? Uh, how do you know where it is? Um, what's your organization process like uh, to make sure that that your head is where it needs to be, just in regards to yourself? Well, I, I've always you tried to to say with you know for for an NBA game now there there's 13 players active for each team per game, so that's 26 players. If each player, any of the 26, has, you know, the game of their life. And for the 13th player, it could be he plays 10 minutes and scores six points. It's the game of his life. It's the best he's ever played. Sure. For your star player, if he goes off for 50, you have to be able to tell a little story about them. So you have to have information on all 26, just a little something, even if that last guy goes off in garbage time. It's a 30-point game. And the telecast has four minutes to go and what's been an awful blowout. And all of a sudden, this last guy on the bench gets in and he explodes in the last three minutes. It's probably more important well, you there. Gotta, correct. So you have to have something for everybody. Uh, that's number one. That's, that's the first rule. The second rule is <clears throat> you could do all this great preparation and I can have, you know, have five so-called nuggets on, on player number 10. 
But if player number 10 gets two fouls in the first minute and hardly plays the rest of the way, I'm not throwing those nuggets in there because it doesn't apply to the game. You have to let the game dictate where you go with all your information. Now, there are exceptions to that. If there's a really, really interesting personal story that happened in the person's life or something they did that off the court that was you know, a, a great human interest tidbit, well, then you can veer off that. I've had producer uh, Ken Wolf, who's been producing for a long time, he told me that one time we had this, we had this unbelievable soundbite on a player uh, talking about his, I think it was about his mom, and the player hardly had an impact on the game, but it was such a touching soundbite. And I was like, yeah, but he's not playing, Kenny. And he's like, it doesn't matter. This this rises above that. And we played the soundbite. And that's all anybody talked to me about after the game. Uh, friends I knew who watched the game. How about that? What he said. So in most cases, the game dictates unless you have something that's that's that you really feel um, has great human interest or is an exceptional um, aspect of a player's life, et cetera, to do. But, uh, but I think the key is still to, to go with um, whatever the game dictates you after you make sure you have something prepared for all 26 players. How do you find something unique on certain guys? You know, like I'm, I'm sure it's probably easy on, easier on some ends, but um, when you go into a game and you're saying, I want to find something that might be new, a, a national audience hasn't heard about Chris Dops, or, I mean, what, what about Kobe? Um, how do you continue to find something 20 years into a guy's career um, that might be something that, that would surprise, shock, or educate an audience? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. Um, it's, it's really hard to find something new because, quite frankly, the, um, most players now, it's, all the stuff is, is uncovered early on. And, you know, back when I first started, <laughs> when I first started games, you'd get off the plane, and the first thing you do when you get off the plane in the airport, and, and at this point we weren't flying on the on team's charter, you would grab the local paper, and you would try and get a nugget or two from the local stories out of the local paper because there was no internet. Um, it was really hard. It was all by talking to guys and and trying to get stuff out of them uh, when you talk to them in person. And that's changed so much um, with the internet and social media. And not only now are there, the NBA has some unbelievable national writers and local writers who have so much great information on not only the games, but on players. So what you do now is you follow them, you read as much as you can. And then what, off what you find out from them, you try and advance it to make it your own a little bit. You obviously have to give credit, but that's when you, you know, you read things and then you go to the person and you ask them about it. Um, but it's, it's so much easier today because there's so much information out there. And even now the players with the players tribute, now they're writing their own stories to get their own information out there. Um, so it's almost a matter, uh, Joel, of at, at some point you have to say, okay, enough. I've prepared enough. I, you went from you can never prepare enough to now. Okay, I can't read one more article. Yeah. I'm over prepared here. You have to draw the line at some point um, and say, okay, it's still about the game. I've got enough nuggets on each of these guys. Where um, all right, let's 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 shut off the computer and let's let's get some sleep and get ready for the game. Um, but it, to answer your initial question, it's hard now. Um, because there's so much information out there to, to uncover something new. 
You had mentioned Ken Wolf, um, the producer, uh, a couple answers ago, and I, I wanted to ask you about an, uh, an, an anecdote I found from him uh, where he had talked about rewatching some of your stuff, um, which I always think is a, an intriguing topic to talk to guys about, particularly of your stature. Um, and he had said, you know, he found one game that you had done. He, I think, had watched five in a row and uh, said, like, hey, hey, you sound a little bit uninterested in this one, and if it was the first game that somebody caught of you, um, that would be their opinion. Uh, what kind of feedback do you still get from people at this point? Um, how much do you still rewatch your own stuff? Um, and what are the types of things that maybe you still find that you want to work on uh, or that bug you um, or that you could be better at that would surprise somebody to hear coming from somebody like Mike Breen? Um, well, I, I have and I've always had three or four people uh, in my life that I will call and say, hey, do me a favor to get a chance, either watch or tape my game on Sunday and and give me some feedback. And the people are, one of them is, is Ken Wolf, uh, a producer who, who just knows the ins and outs. Um, there's a couple of other, I won't name them all, but uh, another one is another play-by-play guy. Another one is a, is a dear friend who's never been in the business but is the biggest sports fan I know, and he just watches every single game. So you try and get different uh, opinions from different angles. And my message is always to them, you know, I want you to tell me what you what you really think. I, I don't want you to say, oh, you did a great job. Um, you can say that if you think that, but I, I want some critique. I, w- I wanna, want you to tell me what I need to hear, not what I want to hear. And that's worked pretty well uh, in some of them over the years. Um, one other person who's, who's listened to games for me and given me great feedback over the years is Mike Francesa. Um, because he's really honest as is, was Kenny Wolf. The aforementioned Mike McCarthy was, was another one who who's always been great with feedback. And again, you just want them to tell you, um, stuff that you could do a little bit better. Um, when I watch and I'll still, I'm going to say twice a year, I'll sit and watch a game that I did. I probably won't watch the whole thing uh, because like just about every, every announcer, you hate to hear your own <laughs> voice. But uh, the one thing that still uh, drives me crazy that I still can get better on, uh, there are two things actually. Um, there was more than two, but these two particular is the, the uh, whole thing of talking too much. There's some... Sometimes I'll rewatch a game and I'm, I'm watching, I'm saying, just, will you just be quiet for a minute? Because we all prepare and we all have a lot of information and we want to share it, but you don't have to share it every second of the telecast. Sometimes it's so wonderful to have, just hear the crowd and let the play go up and down a couple of times. So that's, that's number one for me. Am I talking too much? Another thing is you tend to use the same crutch words to describe things. Um, and you have to mix that up a little bit. You know, every play, oh, that can't be a great play, or, well, oh, that was spectacular. If you, if you use the word spectacular four times in a broadcast, that's too much. You've got to find different ways. Um, so something I do do is, is I'll, I'll get a thesaurus, and if I'm using a word to describe a, uh, you know, an unbelievable play too much, I'll find another word to use in there um, because that's it. So vocabulary uh changing up the vocabulary and and um also the the idea of making sure you don't too, talk too much those are the two things i really watch for what makes a call worthy of bang or does it just come out in the right moment um 
And do you have to watch really how often you do field. it, too? What's that? And do you have to watch how often you use it, too? Yes. I, I don't think I've ever done it more than twice in a game. Maybe maybe one time or two times I've done it three. But I, I try and only use it once a game. Uh, there's been a bunch of occasions where it's twice, but I don't think to me, that's what you have to less is more. Uh, if I started doing it all the time, it would sound ridiculous. And what, what's worthy of it is more of a feel of the crowd, um, of, of the situation. Rarely I use it in the first half, but sometimes a team goes on an amazing run. They're playing at a level that you've rarely seen. The crowd is just, you know, out of seats and it works. But it's only a three-pointer. I've decided it's only a three-pointer. <laughs> that might change, too, depending on the moment. Uh, but it's usually a three-pointer that, that has an unbelievable momentum swing to it uh, in terms of the crowd. And, you know, and part of the reason, Joel, too, is – and I usually only use it for hometown, for the team, the home team that hits it. Um, when I'm doing Nick games, obviously I'll use it on the road for Nick games. But from national – it's mostly the home team. And a big part of that is the crowd is going so crazy for the home team. When a big shot is made, you can't, you can't try and, and scream over the crowd. You can't do it. It's just too loud. Plus, it's, to me, it enhances the telecast, the crowd going crazy. So a quick one-syllable word and you're out and let the crowd take it is better. If I'm trying to, to – um, you know, to go 10 to 15 seconds with my voice at a really high level, trying to fight the crowd, it's, it's not going to sound well. So a lot of it has to do with, you know, is it the home team that's hit it? Is it a momentum hitting shot? Uh, things like that are, are, are all part of it. But most of it, it's just a feel on, on how the game is going. This is going to be a bigger bite here, but uh, I'll see what direction you go with it. Um, what makes good basketball on television? Um, if if you sat down and, and watched yourself or watched anything, how would you diagram up what you want to hear from a play-by-play person? I want to know that um, the play-by-play person is, there's no place you'd rather be than at that game. That's number one, that you could tell he loves basketball or she loves basketball. Number two, that they know the team's, um, and that they, um, they've obviously prepared. You can tell sometimes in the first five minutes of a telecast if a guy is really prepared, if a gal is really prepared, or if you know they just kind of they're going into the game, not winging it, but they're not super prepared. Um, the other thing is, do they like their partner? Now this is this gets a little tricky because sometimes you can tell right away. Man, oh man, these guys get along great. It's it's really fun listening to two people that get along and are having fun with each other. Sure. Sometimes that's natural. Sometimes it's it's you have to fake it. I mean, not every play-by-play guy and color analyst get along. And you know, I'm sure there's been plenty of them over time where um, they sound like they're great friends, but once the game ends, they they rarely spend time together. And I've been. I've been super fortunate and I've never, you know, I'm not just saying this. I pretty much loved every guy I've worked with. I've, I've been so blessed with, with, um, people who are, I have such respect for and admiration, but at the same time, enjoy being around. And I think that's important to the telecast from the, from the, um, from the viewer at home 
if if the two guys like each other and sound like they're having a good time, you're like part of it. You're like the third wheel in there or the fourth wheel if it's a three-man team. So I think those are those are three important aspects. You've got to have show that you have passion and your energy. Um, you've got to be prepared, and you have to be able to make it seem like you and your partner are having the best time together. How important is voice, um, and how... How long have you sounded like this? Uh, what kind of work went into to crafting your sound the way it is? Um, you know, I, I don't think I've ever like crafted anything. It's always just kind of you, you have to you have to be who you. I mean, this uh, boy, this sounds so cliche. It's not, <laughs> I apologize, but you can't try and fake who you are. Sure. So I've never really tried to craft it. The only thing I've tried to do is, you know, I grew up in Yonkers, and where I come from, it's not Yonkers, it's Yonkers. And I've had to kind of uh, try and, and get my Yonkers accent out. So that's the one thing I've tried to to get my, my uh, New York accent out a little bit to, to, to be more of a, a neutral accent, neutral voice. Not that I'm ashamed. I love where I came from. But just I think it, it's more professional to, to sound that way. So that's the only thing I did. Um, you know, I look back at tapes or listen to tapes when I was younger, and I can't believe people hired me. I sounded like I had this little squeaky voice. And I still don't have, in my opinion, I, I don't have one of the great set of pipes. There's so many people out there now that... I will, I will like trade you today Kevin. if you... <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, compared to like Kevin Harlan's and a guy like Dan Schulman, who has such a great voice, um, Joel Myers, these guys have these have the classic by play voices. But I think one of the, one of the best parts of the industry over the last 10 to 15 years is you don't need that, that, that great deep voice anymore. It's more about, um, what's the quality of the, um, the, um, it's the word I'm looking for. It's the content, not necessarily the quality of the voice. It's the content of what you say. That's more important. Uh, now you still have to have, you know, a voice that can override a crowd and, and that can be semi pleasing to a, to a, viewing audience but i think the content is just as important now and that to me that's a great development over the over recent years i don't want to keep you too much longer um so a couple real quick things if i can um or i guess i think they're quick um i do want to ask you about uh you know so often i you know what events come to mind or what big things have you dealt with in your career broadcast wise um i I wanted to ask about one thing in particular and it ties back to kind of what you talked about at the beginning uh in terms of covering news and being able to break down things that are not sports and you know kind of make sure all your facts are in order um what was it like broadcasting uh the malice at the palace from the standpoint of being um being a play-by-play announcer but also i mean realizing at the time that you're i want to say covering a story but at the same time kind of I guess kind of covering a story in some sense and and realizing that you're not just calling a game anymore and, and how to be the voice in that situation you know, Joel, it's it's it really is, regardless of if you're covering a you know a story or um, or a sporting event, it's basically the same principles. I mean, you're you're reporting on what's live reporting on what's happening in in front of you that people are watching. Um, I think what made it easier for me that particular night was in the the year that season and the season before. <laughs> I think I had broadcast 10 fairly big brawls because the Knicks seem to be always getting in scraps and fights, whether it's, you know, the, the, um, Alonzo morning, whether it's <laughs> Kevin Johnson, doc rivers, whether it's Derek Harper and Jojo English, 
I had I had was a veteran blow by blow announcer by the time that that Dallas uh, incident happened because there were a lot of fights then and I'm sure if I went back to the first first basketball fight that I broadcast I'm I'm sure I sounded hysterical in calling it but like anything once you do it a few times you figure out the best way to do it and the best way to do it was at that particular time just describe what you see just describe the various things in terms of the big picture in the arena not just the the you know what's going on 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 the monitor that the fans at home can see but the overall what what's going on just describe what you see and then when it's over when it settles down then i think you can bring in your feeling on what just happened then i think you can comment and editorialize but while it's going on i think the most important thing is not to lose your emotions then just keep reporting what's in front of you keep telling the people what you see up close and once it settles down, then you can then you can decide. Okay, what does this mean? Um, where does that stand in terms of the big picture? Um, how would you handle it? Things like that. The editorializing comes afterwards. Where were you sitting? And and do you worry while that's going on that like this could get out of hand somewhere near my vicinity? Oh, there's no question. Now we were on the opposite side of the benches. The national broadcasts are on the opposite side. Um, obviously the team broadcasters were on the same side. In fact, Mark Boyle, a good friend and, and the, um, longtime voice of the Pacers, he was right there in the middle of it when they came crashing into him. Um, but we were on the other side and in some ways for, for the job that we had to do. And I was with Bill Walton and Jim Gray that night, uh, it was almost better being a step back. But what I was worried about was, you know, I looked behind me and the crowd was surging down. Uh, at both ends, and that's was the concern. If the crowd is now leaving their seats and coming towards the court, that's what we were worried that if any, you know, a mob of, of fans came on the floor, mm. then this would be, you know, get to the point of no return. And it, on both sides, the fans were, were coming down towards the court, and that's what we were hoping that it would end soon because once one was broken up, another one started. So it, it, it just kept seeming like it was going on and on. And I, I told this story many times before, there was a woman in the crowd who uh, was standing over the, the tunnel where the uh, players were leaving. They tried to get the Pacers out of there. And I felt bad for this woman. She was very nicely dressed, and, and she seemed a little distraught with what was going on. And, you know, people were throwing things at the players that were coming across. And I'm like, boy, can they get this poor woman out of there? And all of a sudden she reaches with her right hand and takes a full bottle of water and she's only a couple of feet away from the players and just pegs it at one of the players heads. And at that point, I remember thinking to myself, this is what a mob mentality is. There's no way this person would ever act like that, but they got caught up in the mob mentality of everybody throwing things at the players. And that's how you, sh how things can quickly escalate with a mob mentality. So it, there was a point where it was very scary. We wondered, you know, are they going to be able to calm this thing down? Uh, and fortunately they, they eventually did it was, but that's, that's a night I'll never, ever forget. Hey, that's Mike Breen, the New York Knicks television voice. And of course the voice of the NBA finals on television, joining us here on episode 80 of play by play cast. I mean, was I right on that one? Is that not one of our, is that one, of, is that not one of our better episodes that we've had so far? I, I've said that multiple times, but I 
like thoroughly enjoyed being able to spend almost an hour uh, with Mike Breen. And it's, it's amazing too. even listening, the, the critique side of things is what I found fascinating with Mike in terms of how much he still watches back, how much he still has other people watch back, even at the level he is at. Um, and the things that he looks for, even at his level, critiquing how much, you know, the, the talking too much side of things, um, I thought was fascinating. Uh, I thought getting new information was an interesting part of that conversation as well. Uh, doing what he does at the level that he does with the amount of coverage that there is, particularly in the NBA, particularly in New York now, how you continuously unearth something new. You know, the foundations of, of, I think, really solid play-by-play is both uh, you know, relaying and conveying what you see in front of you, but also informing and educating the viewer or listener. Uh, so how do you do that? You know, you, you know, it's one thing. Here's Kobe Bryant. He was, you know, out of high school and great in Philadelphia. How do you, how do you tell some somebody something new about Kobe Bryant when there is so much out there? I thought that was kind of interesting uh, to get Mike's perspective on as well. And I, I was curious to ask about the the mouse at the palace as well because there's there's been some stuff written on that. Um, but it was cool to kind of uh, redredge that up and kind of relive that history. Uh, and what it was like to convey that firsthand and kind of have to be not just a play-by-play broadcaster, but a newscaster as well, which went back to kind of where that whole conversation started. Uh, awesome. I was I was pumped to get Mike Breen on. So uh, excited that uh, we were finally able. We, we played phone tag for a little bit. Um, so I was like super stoked that we were able to have Mike Breen on the pod this week. Uh, next week, another really good guest coming your way. He's the radio voice of the TCU Horned Frogs. Brian Estridge will round out 2017 as our guest next Friday. Rich Burke comes up after that. Ann Schatz will be on the podcast as well. Uh, our, our second female play-by-play voice. We'll talk about Ann Schatz's career, uh, which is a fascinating one. Uh, so that's the next couple of weeks that lie ahead here on Play-by-Playcast. Many thanks, as always, uh, to you guys for making this podcast go for hitting subscribe, for hitting download, for rating or reviewing the pod. Uh, Many thanks to Mike Breen for joining us, and uh, that'll do it for us this week. Brian Estridge, our guest next week from the TCU Horned Frogs. Until then, we are out. So hit it, Marshmallow. And that will do it from St. Louis, where the score is inconclusive.